on capetalk.co.za, on the app, on DSTV channel 885, and across the city on 567 AM. Join the conversation. This is Cape Talk. This is Cape Talk. Good morning to you. My name is Wabungile Gantzele bringing you the morning review, standing in for Lester Kivitz, the dreadlock Sangoma. For now, we have the Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Morning, morning. Please, my visa hasn't been cancelled to this programme because it's my favourite <laughs> moment of the week. And I was so pleased. I, I mean, much as I miss Lester, I was so pleased to hear that you were back because we had a chat last time, didn't we? It was, it was great fun. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you. I'll start off with uh, one question that comes in from one of our listeners that says, can you make the perfect ice block that doesn't melt so quickly after you put it in a drink? Mm, The thing that affects the melting of ice is, well, it's all down to energy. And ice is in one phase of water, the solid phase. And as you give energy to the ice, you allow the associations, the bonds between the water molecules to be severed so that they can wander off and become a different configuration and that's liquid. Now the rate at which energy gets into the ice is therefore going to determine how long the ice stays in the form that it has. So if you've got a big surface area and a low volume, so a big surface area to volume ratio, then energy flows into the ice more quickly and it will fall apart more quickly. Ice which is low surface area to volume ratio Therefore, all the particles are as packed together as possible with the least interface or contact with other bits of the environment that will last for longer. So therefore, a sphere is probably going to be the best shape that packs in the most water, keeps the most energy inside at a low, at an, at a low level of energy for the longest and will go out of shape the, the least quickly because as a sphere, it will lose water equally and in all directions, pretty much. So it will always be a sphere, it will just be a smaller one. Not terribly interesting from a sculptural point of view, but it will keep its shape, you'll just get a smaller and smaller and smaller one uh, as as it slowly disappears. So that's really the best I can do with that one. I'm still looking for the voice note now that I'm going to play uh, for you. I don't know why it's not playing. If it's not coming just yet, perhaps from you, Chris, uh, what would you like to share with us? Well, there was some quite interesting news out this week about COVID and I thought this would be worthy of discussion because we're all worried about variants and we're all worried about vaccines and we're all worried about the fact that this is now the fourth calendar year that's been impacted because in 2019 we think this virus first began to circulate in 2020, it completely took over the world. In 2021, vaccines began to appear and we thought we would get our lives back. And here we are in 2022 and we've uh, now got op- om- Omicron to grapple with. But we have got vaccines, but they do appear to be less good against some variants than others. So how do we solve that? Well, there's a really interesting story which has come out of Imperial College in London this week where they ask the simple question, why is it that if you look at households where there's been cases of coronavirus infection, that there are some people who just refuse to get infected despite this, what must be very close contact with other household members? Is there something special about those people that mean they're much harder to infect with coronavirus? So they actually did the experiment. They got samples from the people who were in that situation and got infected or didn't get infected and they looked at the immune function and they have found that these people who are uninfectable by COVID from household contacts 
have a certain suite or population of white blood cells called T-cells which recognise specific bits of this new coronavirus. And if you then ask, well, which bits of the coronavirus do they target, you can find that they are bits of the virus which, because it's a big family of viruses, there are thousands of coronaviruses out there, only a handful of them infect humans. But common to all of those coronaviruses are some of these other components. It's almost like they're cousins and they share important components of the virus in common and they're bits of the virus that never change from one type of coronavirus to another. And it just so happens that these people who are hard to infect have run into other coronaviruses, other human coronaviruses, relatively recently, probably. This has given them an immune response against these structures elsewhere in the virus which are conserved, in other words, common to both COVID and these other non-COVID coronaviruses. And this means they actually have a really good immune response that protects them against COVID. It's very similar to what Edward Jenner did when he realised that you could protect people from smallpox by previously infecting them with a low-grade problem called cowpox. So if you give them another virus similar enough to, to the nasty one, but not capable of causing much disease you get protection against both. And so it looks like we might be able to use this learning to inform making what we're dubbing a pan-coronavirus vaccine. In other words, you use these other components of the virus that are always there and very rarely change. You turn that into a vaccine and then you've got something that combats the variants we do know about but should work against variants we don't and may even, therefore, stave off the, the common cold coronaviruses as well. So, you know, we may even have solved the impossible and have a vaccine against some forms of the common cold into the bargain. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice indeed? 39 after 9, you're listening to Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist who joins you to answer all of your science-related questions. I would just like to know why it is that if our body temperature is about 36 degrees centigrade. Why is it that on a day such as today, we find the temperature over 30 degrees extremely hot? Thanks very much. This is Brian speaking. Hello, Brian. Well, the answer is that yes, we have a set point in our bodies. Humans, along with mammals, are warm-blooded. Birds are as well. And that means that we are so-called homeotherms. Homeo meaning staying the same, therm meaning temperature. We take active steps to maintain a constant body temperature and this means that we can regulate our metabolism we can organize our bodies we have a, a very high rate of energy production and this means we can run very costly tissues like a big brain and we can live in environments that we wouldn't be able to do so if we were cold-blooded in other words our body temperature was was at the mercy of the environment the uh, way in which we achieve that thermal regulation is we have processes that enable us to dump heat out of our body faster or slower according to how much heat production there is to maintain a constant temperature. And the heat in our body comes from a range of sources. Chiefly, it's metabolism. When you break down food and your liver is metabolically active, it is releasing energy in the same way that if I chuck wood on a fire and it burns, that chemical reaction releases heat when we move our muscles our muscles are only 20 or 30 percent efficient which means that every time you burn energy doing a gym workout only about 30 percent of the energy you've used has actually gone into moving the weights or moving the the, the bike the other 70 percent has turned into heat and your body has to get rid of it so it shoves it 
through the skin, through blood vessels. You also sweat, and sweating as it evaporates takes heat away from the skin. But in order to maintain your temperature and feel at the right temperature, you've got to lose heat sufficiently fast to keep your temperature right. And so the body has evolved for that to happen over a fairly narrow range of, well, it's narrow in terms of the grand scheme of things, but over a certain range of of air temperatures. And as the air temperature rises, even though it's not the same temperature as your body temperature, because the air temperature is now getting closer in temperature to your body temperature, you're going to find it harder to lose heat to the environment because things move from where there are lots of them to where there's not a lot of them. And that's true for anything in the universe. You get things go from an area of high concentration to more disorder, more spread out, low concentration. So if you've got a lot of water in one place, the water will, by what we call entropy, spread out to go to everywhere else where there's less water. If you've got a lot of, uh, say, something very hot and in one place, it will distribute the energy to the environment so that the, all the heat concentrated in one place spreads out. It's much harder for it to do that if you've got very hot things near to you. So the rate at which you're able to lose energy slows down in hot air. And therefore, although it's not the same temperature as you, it's going to feel hotter because you are struggling to lose heat so quickly. And that's when you get the symptoms of more profuse sweating, feeling more tired, feeling more lethargic because your body's having to put more effort into losing heat. And it makes you do less to make less heat so that you don't end up running into a problem where you get too hot. Very interesting indeed. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, joining you, answering all of your science-related questions. 0214460567. Stephen in Belleville, good morning, have you say? Hi, good day. Um, as we, I asked the doctor, I've got a, a bit of a, a strange question here. we in the Southern Hemisphere, so when we look at the sun, it is near the equator, um, coming down to what I think is the top of Capricorn and then going back up to the equator as the seasons change. The sun never comes further south um, than that point, which is to us here in Cape Town, still northwards from where we are. Why is it, though, that if I have a south-facing window, in the morning in summer I can see the sun coming in through that window at at a very oblique angle, and then the sun will move around, obviously, um through the northern sky, and then in the evening when it, when it sets again, I can still see the sun coming in through the same south-facing window, which shouldn't be the case as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. It should be... You understand what I'm trying to say? You've got a wonky house, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's the opposite, because I'm sitting in the northern hemisphere, and the sun side of my house that's the warmest is the south facing the sun will rise in the east it sets in the west and this is because as as the earth turns the earth is is seeing the sun off in the distance the earth is tilted over 23 and a half degrees so in summer in the northern hemisphere the the earth is tilted towards the sun and this means that the angle at which you see the sun is is slightly uh, tilted but as the earth turns the the part of the earth you're on as it spins around comes into the line of sight of the sun so that the sun rays instead of being hit hitting the earth on the other side and you can't see them you begin to see them you then turn through that path of the sun rays during the day and that's why the sun appears to go across the sky because the earth is turning but it's also tilted so the sun doesn't go across in a straight line the sun goes up 
rises in the sky, gets to about its highest point in the sky at midday, and then sets again on the other side. And it's the opposite in wintertime for, for you guys, because now the 23.5 degrees tilt means that I'm facing the other way, you're facing more towards the sun, and that means that the sun gets higher in the sky for you in your summer during my winter when it's lower in the sky for me but it, it it describes an arc across the sky because the earth has a tilt and we're not sitting directly on the equator seeing direct line of sight to the sun thank you so much for that chris james in simon's town you're up next this is uh, seeking a, an entirely subjective uh, answer opinion but if mankind hadn't been such an aggressive warlike animal And if we hadn't had all the wars of the 19th, 20th, and now the 21st century, would we be overpopulated by now in the, war, in the world? Stephen, I think many would argue, and David Attenborough quite vocally about this among them, that we are very overpopulated. And there's about 8 billion people on Earth, and that's rising at about 1% per year. And that's on average. And in some countries, obviously, it's rising very, very much more than 1% per year. In other countries, it's actually falling. But averaged across the world, it's rising at about 1% per year. Now, you might say, well, that's not very much 1%. In fact, if I got 1% interest on my bank account savings at the moment, I would be delighted. Uh, actually, 1%, if you do the maths, converts into a doubling every 70 to 75 years. In other words, if we carry on at a 1% rate of growth, there will be twice as many humans on Earth in 70 years' time as there is now. And the thing that's most poignant for me is that I remember when I first started making radio programmes in the late 90s, I had a copy of a science magazine that I'd bought before the programme to read it and familiarise myself with what the current stories were. And on the front cover it said, Today the world's six billionth person was born. Two decades later that headline would read, The eight billionth person was born and the problem is that everyone has a carbon footprint in some parts of the world it's much bigger than others and everyone aspires to live very well who can blame them and the problem is the carbon footprint that comes with uh, what we currently regard as living very well means that comes at huge carbon cost and therefore huge environmental cost and everyone's got to live somewhere no one wants to live like sardines everyone wants a nice a nice quality of life and and why not the problem is that with that comes not just that uh, carbon footprint but that environmental impact you've got to give space to people and if the people have got the space then nature doesn't have the space and as we rob nature of more space we push ourselves and encroach ourselves onto wild animals and other ecosystems which have all kinds of diseases to share with us and that close proximity between us and them means we're more likely to then spawn things like pandemics and it is not a coincidence that in the Ebola outbreaks of 2014-15 the areas where this accelerated and, and occurred were in the areas with the greatest population growths in recent years. So population is is a major issue it's something we ignore at our peril we don't have a planet b and if we wait until it's a major crisis then which some argue it, it already is then it will be too late and will have gone too far and so we need to take a long-term viewpoint on this and and look to live much more sustainably not use science to solve our present problem and then make the problem even worse again, which is kind of what we've done. Because prior to uh, the early 1900s, there was no fertiliser. Apart from digging up bird poo, guano, that's rich in phosphates, there was no way of making large amounts of fertiliser. Until along comes the harbour process for making ammonia, 
and this unlocked our ability to produce fertiliser and that unlocked the ability to intensify agriculture and that meant that there was no excuse for people being hungry anymore because we could produce plenty of food. What happened? People then produced plenty of kids. What then happened? We're back to square one, only we've used science to kick the can down the road. So it's important that we use science to solve these problems. It's important that everyone has a high standard of living and a high quality of life. That must be our aspiration. But it's not. it shouldn't be our aspiration that we just keep on solving the problem with science solutions and technology to enable more and more and more of us to slowly take over the world and there's nothing left for nature because that will come with a whole different suite of problems that, that will then need to be solved. So I think we need a long-term viewpoint on this. I don't think wars are a good idea, obviously, but they, they have in the past affected population growth and but also probably also population migration to a greater extent. James, I hope you're happy with that. Show two one four four six zero five six seven. You're in conversation with Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist who is answering all your science-related questions. Pedro in Manneberg, good morning to you. Hi, good morning, gentlemen. Um, just a quick question for the doctor. I'm 56 years old, and for as long as I can remember, the doctor just touched on the corona virus and the flu virus things and so on, so I just wanted to know something. I'm 56 years old, and as for as long as I can remember, I've never had a cold. I've never had the flu. Know what it looks like, know what it sounds like, but never never felt it. Um, I consider myself lucky due to a strong immune system, I assume. My wife, however, not so lucky. And every year, um, in the middle of twice a year, in the middle of winter and just in the beginning of spring, my wife would get the flu so bad that, that she's down for five days. And, and I'm talking about very bad. Um, and... Every year I take her for a flu jab, but she still gets the flu and we buy the medicines and everything until it subsides and goes away eventually. When Corona hit, uh, uh, when Corona initially hit, that year I didn't take her for a flu jab. She hasn't had the flu since. Uh, We went for tests, uh, Corona tests, because there was a scare that we were in contact with somebody that might have been affected. That test came back negative. But since Corona, up until today, my wife hasn't had the flu without the flu jab. So I just wanted to ask the doctor what, what's happening here because it, it's scary. I don't know what's going on. Thank you. I listen on the radio. Thank you so very much, Pedro in Manneberg. Over Thanks, to you, Pedro. doctor. Very interesting um, observation. And it aligns perfectly with what we have observed about the flu. The flu is a seasonal infection and it circulates around the world and it goes from country to country, arriving in each territory at the same time, usually as winter. And what probably brings it in is people travelling round, and it then causes local outbreaks, epidemics, and then people um, get immune to it because they've caught it that winter, and then the flu shuffles off and goes elsewhere for summer. People's immunity then drops a bit, and for a couple of years they're all right, but it's dropping a bit, and then they catch it again. And so you tend to see these boom and bust cycles of the flu, and all the time the flu virus is changing as well. When coronavirus hit, because of the measures put in place to control it and stop it, the number of flu cases plummeted. And we would by now in the UK, because I I helped to run a a diagnostic laboratory in Cambridge University's teaching hospital, Adambrooks, and we would be testing people in our hospital people going to see their GPs, people in other hospitals, we're testing their samples. And so we have a really good snapshot of what the flu is doing in our part of the country. And I think I've probably detected about three or four cases of flu 
in the last few months. I would normally be detecting hundreds of cases at the moment. And that's true this year, it was true last year and the year before because of the restrictions put in place by uh, various authorities internationally to control coronavirus. And because these are both respiratory infections, if you control one of them, you have a knock-on control of the other. It just so happens that coronaviruses spread better than flu. So the measures in place to control COVID have actually worked double time against the flu and stopped it. But when you say your wife gets the flu badly every year, I doubt that is actually flu. And I, I don't mean to belittle what you're asking. My observation, my point is that there are hundreds of respiratory viruses. There's about 100 rhinoviruses. There's about 100 enteroviruses. There's about 50 adenoviruses. There's some coronaviruses. There are parainfluenza viruses. There are lots of viruses, hundreds of them, that cause common cold and flu-like illnesses. There are so many of them that there's uh, you're not going to run out of catching of, of viruses to catch in a lifetime, and they also change. So even though you've fought one off, you can catch it again, and your immunity to each of them also changes with time. So you can catch them again. So I suspect that what's happening to your wife is that she may have a susceptibility to some of these respiratory infections that she keeps catching them, and when she catches them, she gets a bad chest because some of them do affect your chest, and that can give you a bad cough and bad symptoms for a week and in there will probably be some cases of flu but the flu vaccine itself does work incredibly well it can't give you the flu because there's no flu in the uh, normal adult flu shot that we give people and it will give you protection but it won't give you protection against these other viruses that also circulate that produce flu-like illnesses and so i strongly suspect the observation is that because she's been vaccinated yes so she won't have had the flu she'll have had something else but the measures against coronavirus have stopped the flu circulating as well as other respiratory infections and so as a result she's been much better off thanks to those another sms uh, maybe the last one i had i'm very interested to hear the answer to this one if a man is able to move as fast as the fastest insect how fast would he be going that's from david um I'd have to think about this because a house fly flies along about 15 miles an hour, I would think. And Usain Bolt was running, uh, getting close to 30 miles an hour. So in terms of body lengths, I'll tell you what I'll do because I, I can actually calculate this because it's better to do it in terms of body lengths. I'll do it for next week. And we'll work out uh, how how good you'd be if you were running as fast. I mean, I have a, a comparison for a flea and a flea uh, in terms of its ability to jump and also frog hoppers, which are other plant insects. If a human could jump the way they can jump, they'd be able to jump over a house from a standing start. But in terms of running, I'd have to think about that. The fastest organisms on Earth, though, are bacteria. There's a bacterium called Delo Vibrio which is it's a flagellated predatory bacterium that chases down other bacteria, drills holes into them, gets inside them, and then grows inside other bacteria to make new Delovibrio bacteria before bursting out and pursuing others. And they swim at 60 to 80 body lengths per second. So that would be like you completing you know, an Olympic swimming pool in under a second. So they're very, very fast indeed. But I will work out what the insect equivalent is, and I'll bring it back to the table next week. How's that? That's fantastic. Thank you so very much. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. That's uh, all the time we have uh, for this session. Thank you so very much to you. You at home also, thank you to you for uh, being a good sport.